So we are chanting the Komyozo Zanmai every morning, which we have come to call casually the Blue Sheets. This chant uh, is part of a much larger discourse by the same name written by uh, Koan Ajo towards the end of his life, which was when he was in his 80s. Uh, Komyozo Zanmai translates as the practice of the treasury of luminosity. And those paragraphs that we have is, is actually just the end of that treatise that he wrote that um, on a computer printed page, it's about 12 pages long. Koan Ejo is um, Dogen Zenji's primary disciple. So Dogen Zenji is the founder, said to be the founder of uh, Soto Zen Buddhism in Japan. And Koan Ejo is his first Dharma heir, which made him able to be the founder. If he didn't have an heir, that lineage would not have continued. And we might not be here together in this way. Dogen Zenji's um, influence in Zen is still very, 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 very palpable. Um, I was in the Netherlands at a place called Zen River, and they have a, um, a zendo set up like the tr- traditional um, zendo that would be in Japan, um, which is like really a replica of Dogen Zenji's zendo, which is from the 1100s. And they have a relationship with China, with Chan, modern Chan um, practitioners, and he, the, the abbot there said that when, um, they like came to visit him, they were like, Oh my gosh, this is like a medieval Chinese monastery. And they're very surprised that they continue, like it continued to evolve in China, but in Japan, they've kept this, um, very faithfully to, to what Jogen Genji wrote, recorded in great detail what he saw when he went to China and, um, received the the teachings of the Dharma, but also how to practice. So you see that woven in the chant that we're doing at lunch, the very practical, where you place your leg, what kind of cushion to sit on, and then the profound. And Dogen Zenji didn't see those as separate. So part of my intention for this uh, retreat, for the teaching during the Sishin, was to appreciate and share the lineage teachings on the practice of Zazen as taught in the Soto school of Zen. As we enter the new year, I felt it is important to lay the foundation of our practice by returning to the fundamentals of Zazen. I shared this koan when we began on Thursday night where a practitioner asks their teacher, what is zazen or what is meditation? And the teacher said, it's not meditation or it's not zazen. And the practitioner, probably a little befuddled, asked, well, why isn't it meditation? And the teacher said, it's alive. It's alive. I think we need to keep coming back to that because the teachings of Zazen are 
very subtle. And maybe you've been appreciating that just reading um, the different chants that we've been doing this these last two days. The teachings themselves are very subtle. So even if we've been practicing for decades or for a few weeks, it can be easy to relate to meditation in a limited way. Because that's what we do. <laughs> that's what the mind does. It, it tries to simplify and it bases things on previous experience. So our previous experience um, on what we think we want to get out of it. So that definitely colors even what we're able to receive when we read a text. We receive what it kind of makes sense to us. And so if we keep... Uh, coming back to the teachings, some we'll see or other parts of the teachings may open up. And if we don't, we just keep relating to the practice from our own past experience. <coughs> so it's easy even from day to day to forget what the great teachers of the lineage have said about the fullness and inclusivity, the freedom and liberation, the depth and compassion that this practice can open up, the full potential of zazen, which I feel like I'm just beginning to understand, to open up. At uh, some Soto Zen centers, they chant Dogen Zenji's instructions on Zen, Zazen, before every morning meditation period. So we've been chanting during this retreat the Komyozo Zanmai in the morning, the treasury, the practice of the treasury of luminosity, the Fukan Zazengi, which is Dogen Zenji's instructions on Zazen, and the Song of the Grass Roof Hermitage which is the one that says, after eating, relax and enjoy a nap. And that's by Zen master Shurto, who's an early uh, Chan master of the 8th century. So these texts are old, between 800 to 1200 years old. And yet what they're pointing to is timeless. For example... Luminosity has no location. When Buddhas appear in this universe, it does not arise with them. When Buddhas cease, luminosity does not cease. When you are born, luminosity is not born. When you die, luminosity does not die. Buddhas do not have more of it. Sentient beings, or we, don't have less. If you are deluded, it is not. If you are enlightened, it is not. It has no rank, no form, and no name. This is the body of totality of all things. You cannot grasp it. You cannot grasp it. You cannot throw it away. It is unattainable. 
although it is unattainable, it permeates this whole body. Although it is unattainable, it permeates your whole body from the highest heaven to the deepest hell. All realms, all realms are illuminated perfectly. This is wondrous and inconceivably subtle luminosity. So I wanted to use this Dharma talk to explore the teachings of luminosity. This has been an ongoing inquiry and passion of mine for the last eight to 10 years or so. Ever since I had the intimation of reality being a play of light and space. It is one I come back to whenever I have sustained time on the cushion. It fills me with deep wonder and humility. As you have realized, the totality of our lives has the potential to arise in Sashin, as you may have realized. So we sit, and as we sit, the space of awareness opens up and things start bubbling up. And that could be doubts, that could be memories, that could be captivating fantasies and desires, traumas, intellectual inquiries that we have had abandoned and now are coming up for us to entertain, creative ideas that span many realms, some of which we might not have any training in, but we can think it. Deep habits of criticism, fear, reactivity, wanting to fix, to change, to manipulate. So like we have so many options that come forward when we sit down on the cushion. And these teachings are directing us to relate to that phenomena in a very different and radical way. And because all of the totality of our lives that open up when we sit down is so captivating, and some of it's so new, like, oh my gosh, I haven't had this idea for so long. It's so marvelous. I didn't know my mind could think this way. I didn't know it could be so creative. That's so beautiful. But like those in Zazen, we're thinking of those as like, okay, that's the creative capacity of the mind. But we're here to look into its nature. And those fantasies, those can be so fun. But let's spend some of the time looking into their nature because that's where freedom is found. A totally different kind of freedom than the mind can even imagine. In our daily lives, we tend to have strategies that we employ to help us get through the day. So when those more difficult habits of mind, like fear, reactivity, wanting to fix, change, manipulate, we have ways of of managing our lives around so that we don't have to deal so much with those difficult feelings or memories or thoughts. And our ways of managing to get through the day is it's not bad. 
it's necessary and usually provides some temporary relief from suffering. Zen practice is a path of liberation. So it's a different way. And it's such a radical way that we need reminders of exactly what it is. How many people have sat on the cushion? They're like, oh my gosh, I don't know what my practice is. Even though you like reminded yourself at the beginning and probably three other times in that period. It's like our minds are so slippery. A thought can get in there without you even realizing it and then confusion ensues or distraction or murkiness. Zen practice is a path of liberation, a path of directly seeing into our nature. It's a path, as we named yesterday, of joyful ease, a path of wonder, and it's a path of luminosity. So Zen practice can help us bring back the wonder into our lives. Remember the magic that you had as a child or the magic that life had, pure possibility. You could see a whole town in a pile of dirt. Or remember how access to this magic was second nature or perhaps even inherent. You didn't even question that. The pile of dirt could be anything, a fairy castle, a hamburger. Even if your childhood contained challenges and hardships, which all of us probably had some share of that, perhaps you remember some wisps of wonder. Maybe it was looking up at the night sky and just seeing all of those twinkling lights. And maybe you had a story of what those were and how they got there. Or maybe you were fascinated with bugs. We had fireflies where I grew up, which are amazing. Or maybe you were fascinated with sandcastles or climbing trees or playing in the waves. Maybe you had an animal companion who brought you a sense of wonder or maybe a piece of land that you could do anything on. I had a rock garden that seemed so huge when I was a kid. And then when I saw a picture of it again, I was like, oh, (laughs) I told myself we had this giant rock garden. (laughs) It was just a few (laughs) stones. Or maybe you had a place that you visited in your imagination. Maybe you had creative things that you learned to do to survive. Maybe you have moments of pure play or deep curiosity. If you can't remember the specifics, I imagine that there is still some intimation of childlike wonder I imagine that because I imagine you wouldn't be here if you didn't have it, or you wouldn't have stayed this long. Something is compelling you. Something knows that 
the way that we've been trained and conditioned to use our minds isn't the whole truth. Maybe is even just a small, partial aspect of what we call reality. Zen practice is many things, and one thing it is, is a practice of reclaiming this wonder. Have you ever met an adult who still had their wonder? Many Zen teachers are like this. If Chosen was here, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't say this, but Chosen has this. It's a wisdom and a curiosity. There's a palpable freedom in their way of being, which I feel comes from a willingness to stay curious in the face of life's challenges, to ask what seem like impossible and difficult questions that uproot all sense of safety and order to the rational mind. We also have a willingness to directly see into the truths of impermanence, interconnection, no fixed self, and the insubstantiality of appearances. That's what makes a flexible, open mind of wonderment into adulthood. Otherwise, we forget. Maybe, you know, creative practice can keep it open. Having a meditation practice can keep it open. But we actually have to work to keep it open. Having kids probably helps too. Having pets. So I admit Zen can seem very formal and orderly when you first start practicing. But maybe you have recognized to some extent how the forms help create a container of possibility. One, they allow things to come up. And since the schedule has a certain predictability, we know that we have space to be with whatever is arising and to practice with it and to see into it and really get to know it. The forms also provide space for the spontaneity of being that arises in our internal experience and a space to play with the practices to look into the nature of our thoughts, desires, fears, to see perhaps the spaciousness and luminosity within all apparent phenomena. So it's interesting, like Zen has all of these forms and it can look rigid from the outside. And yet what we're doing in Zazen is so free and so spontaneous and so spacious, and so I feel like those must go together for some reason. Some people who do like really spontaneous external practices might have really rigid minds. I don't know. I said on opening night that 
the Zen teachings are radical. And they're so radical. The more I immerse myself in them, I'm like, really? That's what we're asking ourselves to do? Can I really say that? Um, They're so radical. They go against all of our conditioning. They are meant to dismantle all the ways we have learned to keep this self safe. Because the sense of separation we have been conditioned to protect, protect is based on a misperception, a lie, a contraction, and a reification of space and light. And like, who wouldn't want to offer as much as they can to help dismantle that conditioning if what's on the other side is such an, as, as said in one of the chants, an inconceivable freedom. To help each human <laughs> stop identifying with that sense of separation and be the treasury of luminosity, be the spaciousness and light that we are. So we've been conditioned, and not just by our parents, by everything, to believe that we are this contraction. And this contraction, sense of self, I, needs to be protected. So we learn to defend against the world, other people. We even learn how to defend against our own bodies. Ooh, that doesn't feel good. Steal up against it, don't feel it, ignore, push away. And other parts of ourselves, reifying this contraction, this sense of self. But we aren't this contraction. We never were. The Zen teachings provide a direct path to free us from this mistaken identity. So our bodies may contract, our minds may contract, our hearts may contract. And we tend to habitually, without even noticing it, identify with this contraction. So whether it's a physical, a mental, an emotional contraction. And it, it can happen in this familiar expression, mine. There's the contraction, me, I am. It's usually my da-da-da, I am da-da-da, or no, or I don't want to, I don't like this. And in its more elaborated form, it might say, I'm not good enough. I'm a failure, or you're a failure, you know, the inner voice talking to that contraction. Stop trying, something's wrong, you're unworthy. And still more elaborated, it's worrying about how this contraction will fare in old age, Continuing, continually trying to get all the ducks in an order, whatever the ducks are today, success, security, people to like me, or to achieve a sense of enduring security or reputation. 
You notice how the mind can do that? Like imagined problem appears and we have to figure it out. And then we kind of figure out how that, how we're going to solve that imagined problem that might be like 50 years from now. And then we do that, get all the ducks in an order, figure that out, however long that takes. And then new imagined problem, maybe from 10 years ago. We figure that out. It's all this contraction, this sense of self, the sense of me, the sense of mine, sense of what about me. And this is how the mind works. This is not a criticism about any of us. This is just like calling it as it is. At least this is how my mind works. Since I left the monastery, I keep catching my mind in periods of relative quiet and peace, doing the, what are you going to do when you get old and you're single and you can't work anymore? And then flashes to a sad scene of me alone in a nursing home. Have you ever had that? Oh my gosh. When I was at the monastery, I guess I thought like someone at the monastery would take care of me. <laughs> or a more pressing, so that's like one, you know, who knows how many years from now. Or a more pressing is what's the plan if the current plan doesn't work? And then avalanche of images of all the things that could go wrong. I appreciate how practices help me take the backward step into awareness. So that's something we've been working with during this sashin, this backward step. And this is something that you can work with outside of sashin. It's noticing, oh, when am I identified with thought? And then seeing how, how much you can step back from it. I mean, just that noticing is one, like Mio um, you was saying, like a pinky hold. It's just that noticing is, is a hold be, beyond that thought as completely you or completely true. And sometimes we can step back a little further and um, just be the breath. And then that thought has a little more freedom to just move through or step back into awareness and allow the breath to breathe itself. So this backward step is, is one technology that we've been using. And it helps us recognize what is thought and what is awareness. What is thought? Thoughts are usually moving. They usually have a sense quality. So I asked this earlier, but what are your thoughts made of? That's, that's a, its own inquiry. You can notice like, you know, I notice sometimes my thoughts are more in the verbal and that's usually like thinking, planning, kind of more surface level thought activity. And then if I like am in deeper zazen, sometimes my thoughts are just image. An image appears and then there's more of an emotional kind of reaction to that image. Or an image appears and I have no idea of what that's an image of, kind of more dreamlike. And sometimes in, in both of those, the, this, the thought has like a touch quality as well. Like I feel the thought as a touch sensation. Sometimes I'm aware of, someone was telling me this in Sansa, and aware of just like the bubbling of thought. So it's like 
thought hasn't quite become an actual thought that can feel the activity of mind like ready to produce one. <laughs> yeah. So that's what one of the things that this backward step is allowing us to do is notice what is thinking, what are thoughts, and thoughts are often moving too, so that's another quality you can, you can observe for yourself. And then awareness is, you know, we might not have like a sense of it right away, but awareness is still. And it's still in the sense that if you can observe movement and change, the one who is observing is still. So recognizing, just starting to recognize the difference between thinking and awareness. And usually when we have a cascade of thoughts, the contraction of I am is the first thought in that cascade, maybe sometimes even inferred, not referred to directly. So this backward step into awareness is a backward step into spaciousness. So it's from here we can look into the nature of mind, body, thought, and the nature of awareness itself. And this is where the teachings of luminosity begin. Dogen Naji says, therefore put aside the intellectual practice of investigating words and chasing phrases and learn to take the backward step that turns the light and shines it inward. Those are his most concise zazen instructions. Take the backward step that turns the light and shines it inward. This is the practice of zazen, the practice awakening of the Zen school. In uh, the Komyozo Zanmai, uh, it. Koan Ajo, sorry, I forgot his name for a moment. Koan Ajo quotes the uh, sutta called the Vast Inherent Radiance Discourse, which is a Vajrayana Sutra. And it goes, Then the generous one said to Vajrasafa, The aspiration for awakening is the ground. Great compassion is the root. And skillful means the fruition. The aspiration for awakening is the ground. Great compassion is the root. And skillful means the fruition. Master of secrets, what is awakening? Then he answers, it is knowing your mind as it is. This is utter and complete awakening in which nothing is attained. Why? The form of awakening is unknowable and inconceivable. Why? Because awakening is formless. Master of secrets, the formlessness of all things is just this form of space. I love that line. What is awakening? This might be like the most direct Q&A I've ever seen about someone asks what is awakening and they actually get like, a coherent answer. They don't get like a slap or a 
<laughs> fist or all of those things that Dogen Zenji lists in his Fukan Zazenki, <laughs> a shout. What is awakening? It is knowing your mind as it is. It is knowing your mind as it is. What a beautiful practice. What a beautiful summation of what we're doing in Sashin. Getting to know our minds as they are. Our attention in life, though, is often directed outwards. Our modern lives are full of information, stories, podcasts, news, social media. And we have, sadly to say, much more support to follow the lives of celebrities, politicians, and Facebook friends than we do to follow our own minds. Another aspect of the radicalness of Zen is this this homecoming. I use this word a lot. This homecoming, this coming back to ourselves. This coming back to knowing our minds as they are. Coming back to our senses, which is part of our minds. Meeting ourselves as if meeting an old long-lost friend. So part of the work of Zazen is is reestablishing a connection with ourselves, with our inner community, offering compassion, witnessing, accepting the parts of us who we've neglected, pushed away, attempted to disown. And this includes the inner critic who... Mio, you gave us such a great caricature of the inner critic yesterday. And often this, this part of us is a scared child inside who learned to protect us and keep us safe through criticism and hate. Dharma teacher Tara Brock said one way that she meets the inner critic's criticism is to gently place her hand on her heart and whisper, Forgiven, forgiven. So learning to relate to ourselves with compassion and acceptance is radical. And this is part of knowing our minds, is befriending our minds, which is radical. So many of us have inner conflicts parts of us that we're still trying to exile. And this is a strategy to keep keep us safe. Once we are able to be with ourselves without immediately fleeing or fighting, we can begin to look deeper into our minds. So that, that befriending and being able to be with our own experience for a few breaths without the mind just fleeing from the intensity or fighting. That can allow us to begin to look deeper into the layers of our mind, to see what thoughts, body sensations, beliefs, this sense of self, this sense of I am is made of. What are are these made of? And this is the path of wonder and luminosity. It's bringing the light of attention to bear on 
the assumptions we habitually make about reality. First, we make exceptions that our thoughts are us. And taking the backward step, stabilizing attention in the present, helps us put thoughts in their place. But we've been talking about that also, Sheen. Just as another sense happening. So taking the backward step, recognizing thoughts are not us. Just another sense happening. Noticing thought as sensation, touch, image, sound, however you experience thought. And this is profound. I found this radical when a teacher suggested I could notice thought in this way. Like, like, oh, you can actually turn your awareness toward thought. You don't have to just try to avoid them or try to get rid of them, even though you say you're not supposed to get rid of them. How am I supposed to concentrate if I don't get rid of them? You can actually turn your awareness towards, towards thought, and that's not like going to mess up your zazen. <laughs> I thought it would. So it was really liberating for me for someone to be like, well, why don't you look directly at your thoughts and observe what they're made of? I had thought if I did that, I would just get swept away in its content. But you can, and you might even just try it right now to shine the light of awareness back on the thinking mind and see what happens. Often what happens is the mind goes quiet for a moment. Or you see into space, or you see maybe even the, the clarity of mind's nature. Even just a taste of that disrupts our normal relationship with thought. Even if thoughts come roaring back, it's like, oh, wait, I have a different way of relating to them. I can turn my attention back on them. I'm not under the control of thought. Thoughts are just happening. So we can relate to thoughts as just another sense. So that's the first assumption that we make often is that we are our thoughts. Another assumption that we make is the assumption that thoughts are thoughts. Like thoughts are an object out there and we are subject in here that is aware of thoughts. It's like another level of assumption that Zen practice is happy to help us see through. These are teachings on emptiness, which when the Heart Sutra was like first recited, some people left because they couldn't handle it. This is this Heart Sutra is like fundamental teaching on emptiness. And other people died because they couldn't handle it. So we're questioning some fundamental assumptions that even great practitioners have died from (laughs) (laughs) or quit. (laughs) So, And then even more subtly, we make assumptions that this self-subject is in here this in here-ness. 
and we take its perspective and sense of experience for granted. So we're like constantly reifying this self-sense without really looking into, well, wait, what is the grounds for basing my whole life around this idea of I, this contraction? So Zen also invites us to look into that. So, yeah, Zen is inviting us to look into the deepest and most long-standing assumptions that we have about who, who we are and what this world is. So because we all have access to awareness, you can hear me, right? So that, that means you have access to awareness. We can look into our nature. So this isn't something that like, oh, you have to wait until you've practiced for hundreds of years and you memorize the komyozo zanmai and you move to the monastery or you live in a cave. Like, we all have access to awareness. This is also what's really radical about Zen. It's like, here you go. Here is the tool to liberation, to this inconceivable freedom. Practice it. Utilize it. Here's the technology. We all have access to awareness, so let's look into its nature. So I wanted to do that. I want to explore this practice of luminosity experientially. And as we do this, I would like to invite the spirit of wonderment and play. So perhaps tapping into the wonderment of youth. We're just going to use the bright flashlight of awareness to illuminate some basic assumptions that we have been making about the nature of ourselves in the world. And it can be fun. So we'll start Sometimes people like to adjust their posture at this point. <laughs> you don't have to. Start by bringing awareness to the breath. So we're stepping back into awareness. You've been probably using your minds, thinking, following, tracking my words. And now coming back into awareness by making contact with the breath. And just noticing all the details that you notice about the breath. Really sharpening for this exercise, just sharpening your, your tool of awareness, fine-tuning it. Just noticing, zooming in, just noticing all the details. And then from there, 
look back at the one who is aware of the breath. It's noticing the breath is moving. Usually there's movement. Aware of sensations of body moving as you breathe. And looking back at the one who's aware, there might be a sense of stillness. Or spaciousness. Breath is happening in awareness. Aware of the space around the breath. might have a little toe hold on breath, letting your awareness look back at the one who's aware. Sometimes I imagine standing on the breath looking back. Perhaps getting a sense of the stillness and spaciousness of awareness itself. Maybe noticing the space around the breath. The space within the body. So often we're fixated on the sensations, the movements, places of discomfort. And see if you can focus more on the space that's around them, behind them, below them. of the space of awareness and notice that that space of awareness that might be locating inside somewhere maybe you're inside your head or inside your body is the same space that's in the room there's a seamless quality Often we're aware of the objects in the room. 
there's so much space. Just notice and let this inner sense of awareness space merge and blend with the space in the room. You might start with the space around your body. Maybe you have a felt sense of space. Maybe you open your eyes and take in visual space. Awareness is functioning through all of the senses. So for some people might even be opening the sound and you notice the space of the auditory field. And just allowing awareness, what we usually think of as inside, to blend with, mix with the space that we usually consider outside. Just notice that it's, it's seamless. And in that seamlessness, we have the sensations of the body arising. And that can be a tricky place. So we are so used to contracting around physical sensations. Mine, my back pain, my knee pain. Allowing awareness, the space of awareness to mix with the space in the room. Allow the sensations of your body to arise in that space. And just notice them as sensation, touch sensation. sensation has the same root in awareness, just spacious. So physical sensations, sound, the visual field, thought, taste, and smell all arise in the same space. We often highlight, and I, I have this tendency to highlight the spaciousness of awareness. Awareness also has a, a luminosity, a brightness, which is, is its basic knowing function. The awareness recognizes sensation. We don't actually experience the physical sensations of the body first through thought. Just aware of them and we know there's a knowing. So just notice that knowing awareness. 
that recognition as sensations flicker in and out of space there's a knowing maybe you experience that as a brightness gnosis The field of awareness space is also bright in that it's awake. It's imbued with wakefulness. That's its nature. What habitually happens is our awareness contracts around a sensation or a thought or a feeling or a sound. So just notice if that happens and stay curious. Just stay curious because this is part of the practice too. It's not like, oh, I just lost it. You are it. Stay curious. Well, what is that contraction made of? What is that feeling, that thought, that sense of self, that doubt? Just look at it directly with awareness, peering into its nature. Is there space? Is there knowing? Is there movement? And can you allow that? Just really look in with genuine curiosity, not I want to do this so I can get back to whatever I was experiencing two minutes ago. This is the practice, bearing a sense of wonder and curiosity. This is looking into your mind's nature. Kohanejo says, sitting under the open sky, weightless as a flame. Maybe you have a sense of that now. The open sky of awareness space. A body flickering like a flame. Weightless. It does feel like that. These sensations, just allow them to happen. The the body isn't this solid thing. It's alive, right? It's alive. And it's dancing. These sensations are dancing. And so it can be helpful to close your eyes and not see the body and just feel that. 
Just feel that arising like the play of a flame in the wind. Or maybe zooming in on a particular part of the body and noticing that it's it's moving. It's flickering. There's space. There's wakefulness. Sitting under the open sky, weightless as a flame. Even if 84,000 thoughts come and go, each will display itself as the luminosity of perfect knowing itself. Even if 84,000 thoughts come and go, There's no problem. Thoughts are not a problem. They are the display of luminosity, of perfect knowing itself. If you do not hold to them and allow them to just go on their own way. There's a little taste of the practice of luminosity. And you can continue just noticing everything that seems to arise is inseparable from your awareness. Noticing these qualities of spaciousness and, and luminosity and knowing. We can take up this practice of luminosity as, as a koan, as something we return to with curiosity, bringing wonderment to your practice. So whatever practice you're engaged with, you can turn the light of awareness back on the one who is aware. I love the line by Sherto, turn the light to shine within and then just return. And that just gentle poking holes at the assumption that there's a subject and object here. And then just coming back to the breath or coming back to listening. And from time to time, looking back, who's the one who's aware? Oh, it's unfindable. Spacious. You know, and that doesn't, it, it's not, doesn't have to be mediated by thought. It's just a looking, a turning of a awareness. So like a slight orient, different orientation for a moment and then returning to the breath. And as I said before, awareness is functioning freely through the senses. So we can tune into the quality of luminosity in any moment of awareness. Breath awareness, sight, hearing. There's a koan in our tradition, everything has its own light. So just seeing the light of your awareness, the knowing, affirming that through your senses as you're going through your day, 
This display of luminosity must not just be something you experience in sitting, but in each step, each sound, this step, this step, are all the walking of luminosity. All through the day, be dead to personal views or fragmented thoughts. Breathing in, breathing out, hearing, touching without thoughts of separation is just the silent illumination of luminosity in which body and mind are single. I wanted to introduce this teaching, even though this is a short sashin, because it is is profound and it can help us stay connected to the wonderment, the possibility of another level of freedom and creativity and practice, a reminder that there is more to see. There's more to this zazen than fighting with ourselves. There's more to this zazen than achy knees. And this is, this is true for me. This is a cutting edge of my zazen practice and has been for many years. And probably compared to Koan Ejo, I have only intimated the tiniest wisp of what he was writing and practicing from. And I love that. I love that this path continues to open and deepen in inconceivable ways. If we stay with it and allow ourselves permission to look into our basic assumptions, permission to do it wrong, like to have a little bit of fun, a little bit of ruckus on the cushion, disrupt some beliefs, do it. Because that's what liberation is about. It's like the freedom to question our own mind, which every other part of your mind is like, no, don't do that. And so it's like permission from our, ourselves to just look. So may we rouse the courage and humility to avert the gaze and truly know our minds as they really are. To truly know our minds as they really are. That is awakening. And what a profound gift to be on this path with you.